Even when a claim against a federal contractor is dismissed, it never dies. Like a zombie, it can rise forth and bite you. That's what a decade-plus dispute between Textron and the Defense Contract Management Agency shows. We get details from Haynes Boone partner Zach Prince. And Zach, what could possibly occupy a company and the DCMA over 10 or 12 years? Tell us about this case. One of the major problems in any accounting dispute with the government is that the government does not usually challenge contractor accounting practices until way after the contractor has already incurred those costs and reported the costs using the practices. We've seen this issue come up time and time again, even where the government has reviewed and even ostensibly approved counting practices as compliant, it still will come back years later and say, actually, we have an issue here. It doesn't comply with the cost accounting standards or cost allowability provisions. It has a huge impact on contractors and doesn't really leave them with much recourse. So the courts and boards have grappled with this issue for years, trying to figure out how to resolve this inequity. Court of Federal Claims last year in a case involving Sikorsky suggested that possibly those sorts of claims from the government would be barred on equitable principles. But in the backdrop of all of this is a statute of limitations. The government has six years, contractors have six years too, to bring claims one against the other under the Contract Disputes Act. The question is always, when does a claim accrue? That is, when does that clock start counting? And in cost cases, you typically would argue as the contractor, government, you were aware of this, you know, seven, eight plus years in advance, you waited way too long to audit. And so the case should be dismissed. The problem is since 2014, the federal circuit has this rule that statute of limitations issues are not jurisdictional. That is, if it's late, it doesn't deprive the court of the ability to hear the case. And so it means that cases have to go essentially to trial before this type of issue will be resolved which is exactly what happened here in this Beechcraft Defense Company case before the board. In other words, you could still be outside of the statute of limitations, but it would take a court decision to establish that. That's right. After a lengthy trial, likely. So wasting everyone's time and resources. So one way or another, you're in court. That's right. You'll probably win. And I think my read of this is, in this case, Beechcraft is going to win, but not before it spends a heck of a lot of money getting all the issues resolved at trial. So what happened here in this particular case? Beechcraft, I guess, is now part of Textron since this all emerged. Yeah, that's right. So this started in 2011, really started earlier than that. Uh, Beechcraft submitted its forward pricing rate proposals to DCAA, which audited them and concluded in 2011 that there was really no issue. So DCMA issued an initial finding in June 2011 that there were some potential noncompliances, but ultimately that it was not material, so there's no need to do anything further. But wait, there's more, because at some point, and we don't know when, because the record wasn't clear before the board, uh, between 2011 and 2015, DCMA said, actually, we need more information. We need you to put together this general dollar magnitude proposal about a cost impact from these noncompliances. Four years later, this starts picking up. The government doesn't actually issue any decisions in this case until 2018. You know, you've got a six-year statute of limitations. It's certainly seven years at least from when the government should have, in my view, based on what I've seen, known about this. So this is something then that was bought and paid for years and years ago, and somehow the contract is still swirling around in the audit hairs of the DCMA for cost accounting. That's right. 
And I, this is not the oldest case I've seen in a cost accounting context. Uh, there are still some cases from 2007, 2008 kicking around. Wow. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at the law firm Haynes Boone. And just as an aside question here, what is the mechanism by which an agency would discover something buried deeply in a set of documents for one of a couple of hundred thousand, several hundred thousand contracts under its purview? Do they have some kind of an AI program running, combing for this stuff, or do they hire into turns to randomly revisit ancient cases. No, they've got auditors. They've got auditors. So I don't know what kicked this back up in 2015. Who looked at this and said, you know what, actually, this is a CAS violation. But for whatever reason, it triggered the interest of the agency. And what is the status of it now? They're headed to court? They're headed to court. So the board in a decision here for summary judgment from Beechcraft looked at the definitions of claim accrual. Uh, which is when you're, you're going to have that time clock starting for uh, statute of limitations purposes. And they explain that the government doesn't actually need to be fully aware of the full impact of the supposed damages for a claim to accrue. For liability to be fixed, there has to be some injury. So the way they stated the test seems very favorable to Beechcraft. As the government had these four pricing rate proposals, they issued audit reports, several of them in 2011, Beechcraft argued the government had all the information in front of it that it had in 2015 and 16 that should have let it know that if there was an injury, this is what it was. But the problem is that because it is now the burden of the contractor to demonstrate that the statute of limitations bars the case, the board needs there to be absolutely no disputed facts. So the board wanted there to be all of those reports and all of the data that uh, Beechcraft says were important in the record, in front of it, and the meaning explained. And they hadn't carried that burden yet. Yeah, this is really the personification of red tape to the layperson looking externally at this. And so contractors then basically are under a sort of Damocles that could fall down on their heads at any time for some arbitrary reason. Hey, we found something on column seven on page 53 that that bolt was incorrectly attributed to this contract when it really went on that tailpiece, and therefore you're in court. What can contractors do to prevent this? Is there anything they can do to wall off that possibility at some point? Not a whole lot. One thing they could do is resist accepting contracts subject to the cost accounting standards. But you really can't do that when you want to have contracts above a certain size threshold. Um, If you're selling commercial items, that's an exception. But if you're a traditional defense contractor, cost accounting standards are going to be something in your life. You could also try to avoid having cost reimbursable contracts. But the problem is cost reimbursable contracts are very beneficial in many respects to contractors. You don't have the risk of, say, crazy inflation or supply chains going haywire. And what are some of the, if you know, some of the common cost accounting errors that could be avoided? For example, attributing a cost to the wrong part of a project or to, a, if you have several projects, it could be assigned to the wrong project, which means, you know, the government pays in one side, but on the other hand, it's, it's saving. I guess it all comes out in the wash. But is that the kind of error that can happen? Or just simply misstating or overstating costs? It's certainly the type of error that can happen where you misallocate costs to one contract instead of the other, private sector instead of government or vice versa. But a lot of these disputes really come down to interpretation of arcane accounting rules, where the government's position maybe is plausible, but so is the contractors. And arguably, the government has already known for years about how the contractor is interpreting those rules. 
So it's hard to avoid these disputes. And if you're a small business, same rules apply, and therefore, relatively speaking, your costs of going to court could be much higher. Small businesses are fortunate in that that's one of the exemptions to the cost accounting standards applicability. So it's the challenge is once you graduate from your size uh, standard and now you're a large business, you likely don't have the accounting set up to deal with this. Uh, I see this all the time in acquisitions where a company that was small is now bought by a big company. They do not have the mechanisms in place to comply, but they better do it very fast. And I guess the other lesson is never throw away your paperwork, so to speak. That's always a lesson in government contracts. All right. Well, no bonanza for Beechcraft this time. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone, him and his pooch there. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out, I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sisulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.